if you were a talented writer and could write about anything, what would you choose? Our guest today is a New York-based writer and journalist. As a senior writer at the magazine Entertainment Weekly, she often covers Hollywood with thoughtful profiles on celebrities. For travel magazines, she writes about luxurious cruises and things like the 15 best islands in the world to visit and the top hotels in European capital cities. But what she really likes to write about is, you guessed it, dogs. My guest today on The Long Leash is Rebecca Asher Walsh. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and welcome to The Long Leash. Rebecca Asher Walsh has written a trilogy of books celebrating the special relationship that we have with our dogs. They were published by National Geographic and feature not only great words, but spectacular photography. As a girl who grew up in Manhattan with a rescue dog, before there was even a fashionable term, she knows how to navigate the Big Apple and chase down a story, and her favorite stories, luckily, are about dogs. Rebecca Walsh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I always love to talk about dogs. Dogs are what we talk about here at Dog Podcast Network. You are a writer, rather accomplished writer. You've written a lot of books on various subjects, and we'll get into some of those. And you have written for Entertainment Weekly for a long time. And you grew up in New York, a massive dog lover, Mm -hmm. and dogs have woven their way throughout your life. Yes, they have. They have. And I was so grateful to be able to find a way to write about them because my background is, as you mentioned, an entertainment reporter. And On the side, I would have my dog love projects. So I was a volunteer at the New York City shelter, which is a high kill shelter, and was very involved in helping rescue pit bulls and started a foundation to help with that as well. But I hadn't been able to marry the two. And then a friend who was an editor at National Geographic called and said, how about a book about amazing dogs? And at first I was sort of skeptical, actually. Really? Well, I feel that passions can be very insular. So Mm. it's like, I'm a dog person, not a cat person. Mm. And when someone starts talking about their cats, I immediately check out. (laughs) And I didn't want to be that person who started talking about dogs and had people put the book down. So I gave a lot of thought to what I thought would make it compelling. And I thought it was really that it's not so much the dog. I mean, it is the dog for the person who lives with the dog, but The magic of dogs is how they change us and how they bring us together and allow us to put some of our defenses down and come together through this shared love. So I came across a couple of stories of dogs who had changed people's lives and not only changed people's lives, but had then inspired those people to go out and change more lives. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's it right? Because who doesn't love an inspiring story? And if a dog is involved, all the better. Right. And if the dog doesn't die at the end, unlike old Yeller, all the better. So I kept looking for those compelling stories. And I tried also to put as many in as possible who are rescue dogs in a way that I don't think beats people over the head, but I think does make a compelling case that really extraordinary dogs are not necessarily bought from breeders. 
So yeah, it's not really the dogs that people are interested in. It's the people behind the dogs and the relationships that dogs have with the people. Tell me about some of the favorite, because you've written three books in this trilogy at this point. Yeah. Tell me about some of your favorite stories that you've collected. I mean, there are there are so many amazing stories. It's like picking your favorite children. <laughs> I think that there are different kinds of stories. So one is about this dog named Duke. And while the dog is amazing, the story is actually amazing, which is that he belonged to a family that was beset by domestic violence. Mm. And the perpetrator of the domestic violence had continually threatened his wife and the children that if she left with the children, he would hurt the dog. So they stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed because no shelters had room for dogs. Mm -hmm. And the shelter in the Midwest became aware of this when Duke showed up on their doorstep and they managed to make a place for this dog. And they ultimately ended up building a shelter and became the first shelter for women and families fleeing domestic abuse where you could bring your animal. And what is so moving about that is speaking to people who have devoted their lives to the survivors of domestic violence the number of family members who don't leave because they aren't willing to leave their animal, mm. right? And then in addition, what I found so moving was hearing the description of here are these families who are traumatized living in a shelter. And at the end of the day, they can walk their dog together and they don't need to talk. They can just go walk their dog. And it is a moment of normalcy in their lives. And I think that's an extraordinary story of how one dog and one family or person's devotion to a dog can absolutely change all of our lives and the way we think about them. That is extraordinary. How do you collect these stories? Where do they come from? So I, I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of reaching out because I was so involved in sort of dog community. So there was one dog that I love very, very much named Wilma. And I found out about her because a friend knew someone who knew the owner. And this is a wonderful story. He's a New York City fireman. And Wilma came in to the firehouse and nobody was able or willing to adopt her because there was so much wrong with her. And it turned out that she had cerebral palsy, so she couldn't really walk. And she self-mutilated her paws and her tongue hung out. Hmm. And this wonderful fireman said, I'm adopting her and I'm not only adopting her, I'm becoming trained in holistic medicine so that I can treat her. And so he has become this extraordinary healer who knows everything there is to know about acupuncture, herbal medications, drugs, nursed her back to health and also gives back on his free hours to anybody else who needs help. A firefighter. That's his. Yes. Wow. And I found him because a friend who also loved dogs happened to live near his fire station and had met him and Wilma. And then I found other people. There's a wonderful man, a former vet who had adopted another rescue dog and had been suicidal. And the dog came and just looked at him and then sort of nudged the gun out of his hand. And he said, that was it. That was it. And the two of them, this is a dog named Cheyenne. Not only did he recover, but he went on to start 
a program that pairs vets with dogs in need of rescuing. Hmm. Because he said, and this, I mean, he just made me cry when I talked to him, but he said, what vets need, the vets need a job. You know, we come out of war and we're used to having jobs and these dogs need homes and they need to be rehabilitated. And so these dogs are saving the men's lives and the men are saving the dogs' lives. And I found him because I read about his extraordinary organization and wasn't even aware of the backstory. So sometimes it was just reading about organizations I really respected and then working my way backwards. There's a another wonderful dog named Rosie, a golden retriever, who goes and is the comfort animal to children who've been sexually abused, who have to testify in court, often with family members. Wow. Very brutal, brutal stuff. And I trace that back to the wonderful, wonderful counselor who works in the home where many of these children come through, who insisted that there would be a Rosie and then got the Rosie into the DA's office. So there were, it was just fun reporting and putting the puzzle pieces together. How is uh, chasing these dog stories down different than uh, being an entertainment reporter covering entertainment news? It's more joyful, to be <laughs> honest. It's more fun than Jennifer Aniston's latest. <laughs> right. It's, it's not so much that, but I think entertainment journalism has a job to do, and it's a very specific job, and actors and filmmakers, and they have a job to do as entertainment journalists have a job to do, which is to promote a film or to tell a story about a project or something like that. When you're talking about something like the love of a dog or how the dog has changed you, everyone wants to talk. Mm. They're not, I'm sorry, that's off limits. I'm not thinking, what if this question is too personal? It's so personal, but it's also so generous and everybody wants to share their story. And I have to say during these three books, I so often ended up in tears and it wasn't out of sadness. It was out of being so moved by total strangers telling me their truths and wanting to share them with other people so that they could be comforted by them. So you live in New York now. You are a native New Yorker. You grew up in the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm, I did. And you adopted a, you had an adopted dog uh, growing up. Yes, I had an copper? adopted, yes, I had my beloved copper. I had an adopted, rescued golden retriever who had one of the first cases of heartworm and was a hot mess when we got him. But that started my adopting animals. So what's the story of copper coming into your life? How old were you? And I was six and I was, wow. yes, and I was so desperate for a dog and he showed up so skinny and so depressed. I guess my parents had heard about him through a friend and he became my stalwart companion until I went to college. He lived a long time. And growing up on the Upper East Side mm -hmm. with an adopted dog, what was that like? What, what, well, it was like certainly to... the only one with an adopted dog. It was not the cool thing to do at that point. Uh -huh. But because he was a pure Greek golden retriever, he passed. So. <laughs> they didn't know. They didn't, <laughs> no, they didn't know. He just looked him. like a fancy dog. So it was okay. And then when I got out of college, my boyfriend at the time ended up adopting a rescue standard poodle, which was sort of funny because who adopts, who rescues a standard poodle? He was really cool though. We shaved him down like a lamb and he had all of these foot problems. So we put him in wrestling shoes and then I fell in love with pit bulls and that was that. I want to get to pit bulls in a moment, but let's talk a little bit more about the unique dog culture of New York City. Mm. 
it's pretty special. It's unlike perhaps London is the closest other big city that has a dog culture. I think that's right. I think that's right. My friends in London report the same. We speak the same language about dog parks. Yeah. How has the dog culture changed through the pandemic from before and after? Well, then one of the loveliest things about the dog culture is that it didn't change. So the world was shutting down and everyone was terrified and you could still go meet a friend in the park and walk your dogs, right? There was nothing, some people would wear masks, some people wouldn't wear masks, but you were outside, you were a few feet apart. It's not like you walk dogs holding hands with your dog friends, right? (laughs) And there was an hour of normalcy in your day in the morning when the dogs could run. And it just, it felt to me like it was the one place being in the park with the dogs where everything you could forget for a minute. And I think it's still true to some degree. You know, everybody has just lets their dogs run around. And even in the afternoon when they have to be on the leash, there you are walking your dog around the reservoir. And London, exactly as you said, the same story. My friends who just love being in the dog runs with their dogs and their lives didn't change. And the other thing that was nice about that is because everyone has their dog run buddies, I don't think there was the same sense of isolation. So my friend in London, Robert, who has a wonderful rescue black lab, so he too looks very fancy, had was out every day with his dog run friends. So even when London was shut down, you had to go walk your dog yeah. and they couldn't tell you you couldn't meet a friend. So his life continued in some ways. So they were sort of the lifeline. Were you in New York during the height of this, during the the scariest times? I was not. I was I was back in New York during scary times, but at the height of scary times, I was not in New York. Okay. And, you know, I think one of the fascinating things is dogs have to get to learn to use elevators quite well. Oh, God. Yes. So dogs... I love to ask New Yorkers, tell me your elevator dog stories because they're always fun. I don't... Mine's less than fun because I have a dog... I have a dog who's lately dog reactive. And so it's like as the world turns in my elevator, there are two other dogs in the building that my dog hates and they hate him. And so the owners, I love the owners. I love the owners. So we all sit around and talk about when our dogs are going out. So we time it so that our dogs never go out at the same time. When we make a mistake or we veer off schedule, it is (laughs) a terrible, terrible turn of events of just, it is like something out of a reality show that would never be allowed to be seen. Describe it. It's just so angry, so growling. My dog is so hysterical about the bulldog who lives on the 12th floor that if the elevator stops on the 12th floor and the door opens, he's already going crazy. And it's some nice kid trying to go to school in the morning. And I have to explain, (laughs) no, no, he's really lovely. He just thought it was going to be Louise the bulldog. So elevators are a little harrowing for many of us in the city. But I think that, you know, if your dog is dog friendly, elevators are just fine. Then also you're dealing with a lot of people don't like dogs. Mm. So you have to get that judgy, judgy face when you're on the elevator with your dog, even though it's not like you're doing it to upset somebody else. So there's a lot of drama. It's a lot of drama having a dog in an apartment building. Well, that judgy, judgy is a good transition point to talk about pit bulls and your interest in and focus on pit bull rescue. Yeah. So I fell in love with pit bulls when we adopted our first pit bull many, many, many years ago. And I decided there was no going back. And I was also 
began volunteering at the city shelter, which is a high kill shelter. And because unlike, say, the ASPCA has to take in any dog that's brought to it, I would say it's probably 99% pit bulls. And I just Mm. fell in love with these dogs who, you know, as I have experienced with my own pit bulls, can be dog reactive, but are the kindest, gentlest, extraordinary dogs when raised appropriately. And, you know, again, have been one of the things that I think gets overlooked is that pits were raised to in fights, the other person has to feel the other pit bull to make sure there are no weapons on the dog. It's a very sad thing, the pit bull fighting, but Mm -hmm. they are bred to be very aggressive towards each other, not towards Mm -hmm. people. They need to be handled by anyone. And my experience is that they are the gentlest, gentlest creatures in the world. And unfortunately, they come with a huge stigma and there are reasons for it. I I don't discount that there are reasons for it, but I also find that like any kind of stigma, the media has played a terrible role in it. And I think much of it's unconscious, but you know, at our, in a newspaper, we go to a small town on the weekends and the newspaper will say pit bull bites neighbor in a heartbeat. And then the other one times when it's a golden retriever, a German shepherd, and it reports those as well, it's neighbor's dog, bites somebody else. So it becomes this sort of glaring thing around pit bulls. So I think as the owner of pit bulls, you spend a huge amount of your time excusing, discussing, educating, apologizing. And I think that it's also more work. I mean, my dog cannot be off leash in a lot of situations because there is no question my dog will be the one blamed. No question. And there is no question, it has happened when witnesses around me, who I don't even know, so they're not invested in me personally, say, but that's crazy. That other dog was unneutered and off a leash and came at your dog who was neutered and on a leash. And I say, I know, but that is a golden retriever and this is a pit bull. So there's a lot of changing you have to make in your life if you're going to live somewhere like New York City where you have to interact with other human beings. In the country, I think you're free to be happy. Our dog in the country lives with 40 chickens, very happily. <laughs> chickens don't have a problem. Oh, yeah, to the chickens, exactly. The chickens love him. They don't know who he is. And he lives with our bunny rabbit. And, you know, it's really other, it's other people that are the problem for him. Right. You talk about the media stigma of pit bulls as someone who's been in the media for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can that change? One of the interesting things is, as somebody who's been in the media for a while is there are always trends, right? So you will read about pit bulls used to be at a certain time nanny dogs, and then German shepherds became nanny dogs, and then St. Bernard's became nanny dogs. Helen Keller had a pit bull. I mean, there are all of these people in history who had pit bulls, and then- Define nanny dogs, because you describe your own your own dog buddy as- So that yeah. if you- we're looking for a family-friendly dog. What you wanted to raise your children and mind your children was a pit bull. Hmm. Then that changed. So the story changes, right? So it's all about the branding. And I think if you think about the actors who are famous, who have gone through some kind of salacious scandal, and you think, oh, that person's branded for the rest of their lives. And then they're just not, right? Then they just go on, they make another good movie. You can barely even remember. I mean, we don't even need to name names, but those scandals where I thought, ooh, this person is never going to get past 
this particular thing. And short of really hurting somebody, and sometimes even hurting somebody, mm-hmm. they move on. Right. So I think what the media could do is be less invested in the story of pit bulls as villains. And I don't think pit bull lovers are the right ones to make that case because we're too invested and it's too subjective and who would buy my story. But I think like all of us, if we could just stop for a moment, pause and say, okay, so when I'm writing this headline or what is the story here? Or what is the context of this story? So when you read a story about a pit bull attacking someone, for instance, you know, what's often buried in there is that the dog was pretty feral, was completely uncared for, was living outside, was trained as a guard dog with another dog and somebody approached them, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they're sort of, they're setups for disaster. And I think, as you know, as a dog lover, all dogs, regardless of their breed and their size, are animals. And if you put them in positions where they feel threatened, they might act in a certain way. But when a chihuahua does it, you just end up with a bloody ankle, right? So I think that we have to be less hysterical about the breed and consider more about how we treat animals and where we see their place in our life, dogs in particular. Rebecca, let's take a break here. But when we come back, I want to talk about your volunteer work and the Deja Foundation. We will be right back. And now a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. We are back with Rebecca Asher Walsh. Now, in New York, you have volunteered a lot. You mentioned the ASPCA. What organizations are you involved with? So I actually am a volunteer at Animal Care and Control, which is the city shelter. And that's rebranded to make it sound better. It used to be Animal Oh, no, sorry. It was Animal Care and Control, and now it's Animal Care Center. Ah, that does sound much nicer. So much nicer. Regardless, it is the city shelter, and it has to take in any animals that come to it versus the ASPCA, which has the ability to choose which animals it takes. 
So it's a rough place to be, but I think the people who are there are extraordinary and a real service to these animals who don't have very long before they need to be adopted out. And, you know, they can be given a nice life and walks and some care. I think it's wonderful. And the people who work there are amazing and the volunteers are amazing. Now, I read somewhere that you do something that I'd never heard of. It's just the phrase just shook me. Euthanasia walks. Youth walks. Yes. So that has now changed with the current administration, but for many years, high kill shelters usually can't keep the dogs for very long. And at one point during my tenure there, it was probably three or four days because you don't have the cage space. So the dogs are euthanized. So what a group of volunteers banded together to do was to make sure those dogs were walked before they were euthanized. And so the euthanasias began at noon, would begin at noon, and you would get there in the morning and give them wonderful, you know, one volunteer was always great about bringing roast beef or treats and take them to the park and give them a chance to just have some relief and be out of their cage before they were taken away. That must have been really tough. Yes, it was really tough. There were lots and lots of tears shed there. And, you know, again, this goes back to anybody who can adopt. 90% of those dogs are adoptable dogs who just didn't have the time that they needed for someone to find them. Mm. And so that's, again, why it's so important to get out to shelters and adopt whatever, you know, I have a rescue rabbit right next to me. (laughs) It doesn't matter what animal you're looking for, but I think when you understand the number of extraordinary potential pets that are being euthanized, it will get you out there. And also I think in terms of going back to rebranding pit bulls, rebranding shelter animals, because I think there's this perception that they're somehow not adoptable or Mm. there's something wrong with them, but almost all of the shelter animals that I've worked with, the families have lost their home. The families have died. The family has to move to a place that doesn't allow big dogs. And in New York City, that's almost every apartment building. So unless you're phenomenally wealthy and have cash to buy immediately to house your dog, you're out of luck. Hmm. And so I think that if people were more aware of the stories of how that animal ended up there, it wasn't that the dog is a bad dog or the cat is a bad cat. It's the dog or cats had really bad luck. And often there's a really grieving family behind it. I mean, the number of people who burst into tears at intake because they're having to give up their animal. And you just want to say, I promise this animal will go on to a happy rest of its life. So tell me about the Deja Foundation. Hmm. So this is a foundation. The rescue community performs a lot of wonderful, wonderful tasks in pulling animals off of what's called the youth list before they're euthanized the night before. But what we were finding as volunteers is that often, and I think this is true around the country with any kind of rescuers, there's a huge amount of passion and enthusiasm, but there aren't necessarily the homes to send those dogs. So they can end up in a little bit of a hoarding situation. And so we were trying to figure out how, what we could do to help the rescues. And then I also wanted, as somebody who had adopted so many animals, they come to you 
from a shelter. And very often, because they have been under such great stress and they may have not had an easy life beforehand, they come with medical issues that are very easily treated. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are anything from they are underweight and they need to be put on a high fat diet. They have worms. They aren't house trained now. And often they are house trained. They've just been so traumatized in the shelter. They need to be rehouse trained. They have separation anxiety. They just need a few days of quite all of these things. But what you see is that you've done this wonderful thing. You've adopted an animal. You feel really good about yourself. And 24 hours later, your life blows up because you have $500 in vet bills and your dog cries every time you're trying to get out the door to work. And this nice thing you've done is a nightmare. And sometimes people return the dogs, right? Because it isn't what they signed up for. But so much of what they didn't sign up for, A, of course you didn't sign up for that, but also we can help. So what Deja Foundation does is for people who have adopted a rescue dog, we will provide vet and training funds. So if you come to us and say, I adopted Maisie from ACC and it turns out Maisie has mange, we can say, that's fine. We're so happy to cover that $200 of whatever it is. Maisie also has separation anxiety. Very treatable, very crazy making, but very treatable. Let us hire you a trainer for an hour or two. And what this does is sustains healthy adoptions because the owner isn't resentful or panicked that they've made a terrible decision and they can just get on with loving the dog while we give the dog and the person some help. That's awesome. How much money has the Deja Foundation granted? It's hard. To, I mean, I'm a terrible, terrible administrator, so I can't tell <laughs> you. We've been up and running for 12 years. Wow. And we generally give gifts of around, you know, it really depends on what's being asked, mm -hmm. but around $250. And we accommodate as many people as we can who ask. So we say yes a lot more than we say no. Um, and we also help the rescues with the same cost. So a rescue will pull a dog and we'll say, absolutely, we'll cover the vet cost. Do you have geographical limits? Is it just for New York City? You know, that's an interesting question. I don't have geographical limits. It's New York State mm -hmm. because those are the people to whom I'm connected who know about Deja Foundation who mm -hmm. will reach out. Well, now a few more people will know because <laughs> I mean, of this podcast. Hawaii, exactly. Uh, yes, yeah. and all around the country. Yes, it's so far it's been mostly in the Northeast. Okay. We'll put a link to Deja Foundation in our DejaFoundation.org. Yeah. Thank you. So you have twin girls. Mm -hmm. And how old are they now? They are 13. Okay. And I understand dogs have sort of played a role in raising them a bit. Well, dogs have played a huge role in raising them for me because they've kept me sane during the hard times and offered me comfort. And they also have been extremely devoted to the girls. So from the moment I brought them home from the hospital as very small babies, my dog buddy would just get up and make sure they were okay and always be near them and just take care of us and sleep in their room. And actually to this day, we're three pit bulls later. Buddy just passed away last year, but we've had others as well. And our dog, Joe, our current youngest pit rescue, will only sleep with them. And last night I was trying to get him to sleep with me and he would have none of it. And he, so he put up with it for about 10 minutes. I even let him sleep in my bed. And then he sort of slinked off and pushed open their door. 
looked back at me woefully and apologetically that <laughs> sorry, but this isn't where I belong. So they're, they're amazing about taking care of the girls and keeping an eye on them. And are your daughters sort of ambassadors for pit bulls among their friends? One of the twins is an extraordinary ambassador. It's the, you know, rescue pits is the back of her phone case <laughs> to all my haters with a pit bull face sticking his tongue out is her computer case. <laughs> she's all over it. So she's very, very, very vocal about it. And my other child does not love dogs. And I said to her at dinner the other night, where did you come from? <laughs> there is no one in this family who doesn't love dogs, at least a little bit. So I love them a little bit, but I think the rest of us are just so crazy about them that maybe there's not room for her. Interesting. I think she's a normal dog lover. Whereas Dolly and I walk down the street and say, oh, look at that dog. Oh, isn't that the cutest dog? She doesn't do that. That maybe answer the question about, is it nature versus nurture that brings this? Is the scientific study there? I think there's no question. Nature, nature, nature. Wow. That's very, very, very interesting. I bet we could get NIH money for a research study. It's like cat people versus dog people, right? Mm, We don't talk about that here. So you have written other books, though, and you have a new book coming out, which I'm assuming has something to do with your kids. How to Survive Middle School U.S. History? (laughs) So that was a very funny pandemic project where Random House is doing a very cool group of study guides that are the one that I was asked to write is looking at U.S. history the way I wish I had been taught U.S. history. And I hated U.S. history because I could smell a lie, right? It was all these perfect, boring white men doing perfect things. And there were lots of Indians doing bad things. And Mm -hmm. I was so bored. And then being re-educated as an adult about what was really going on. So I was approached about this book and the job was to really write the real history of the country and that that real history being it's complicated and people are complicated. And yes, Jefferson was extraordinary, but Jefferson had slaves and Washington was amazing. And Washington had slaves and all of this, you know, from there on out and looking at what we did to the Native Americans and looking at LGBTQ rights going through and looking at the Black women suffragettes who were not given their due because the Susan B. Antonys and all the white women suffragists really just wanted voting rights for middle and upper class white women. And so it's very nuanced and interesting. And I lucked into this project because as a former writer for Entertainment Weekly, I'm very quick. And the person who had first written this book hadn't quite gotten it where it needed to be. And so I had a, they had a very short window to turn it around. And they said, you know, we're worried that you're not a historian. And I said, you and me both, believe me, I'm so worried about that. Um, but my kids really wanted me to do it. And it ended up being just a miracle. I wrote it. It was during the pandemic. So it was something to focus on. It was during the election when we didn't know whether Trump or Biden was going to win. And it was something just to sink into and see that our country's always been a hot mess in certain ways. And I didn't need to be so reactive to every single moment of everything that was happening. So it was a huge gift and for sure a one-off. But, you know, I've done something for my kids now. So 
Well, it sounds like something that adults would benefit from as well. I think so. <laughs> I think absolutely. It sounds like Schoolhouse Rock, but a little bit more yes. uh, updated version. Yes. I think it's actually geared for the students and their teachers. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. That's an interesting project. Yeah. What else are you working on? Uh, what else is coming out of your word processor? So right now I'm back to entertainment reporting for the moment and waiting to see what the next thing will be. So that's all cheerful and fine. That's awesome. As you look forward, how do you think this evolution of of dogs and pit bull rescues are going to go in terms of, well, either reshaping the media's perception mm-hmm. or or just sort of changing the zeitgeist so that they are not stigmatized as they are now? I think it really is changing people's minds one dog at a time. Hmm. And I think that there's no sexy rebranding marketing campaign that can be done. I think it's every person I have ever met who asked to pet my dog says, I love this dog so much. What kind of dog is it? And you tell them that changes people's minds. I think everyone who goes into a shelter with an open heart and falls in love with a dog who's part pit or all pit and takes a risk with that dog, an educated risk is changing minds as well because they become a part of our mainstream society and we see them and we see them in their glory and we can embrace them without the stigma. Beautiful. Rebecca Asher Walsh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that is all for today's show. I'd like to thank you for hitting the play button And if you enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please do me a favor. Follow us in your favorite podcast app and consider telling a friend or two about The Long Leash. We love it as new dog-loving listeners discover us because they were referred by people like you. We have a whole slate of shows here at Dog Podcast Network, including our flagship show, Dog Edition, which is the world's first podcast designed for you to listen to while you walk your dog. Here's more on that from Caroline Winter. It's the difficult question probably few of us have ever asked. What happens to your dog if you die first? That's on the next episode of Dog Edition. Thanks again for joining me today. Our thanks to Rebecca Asher Walsh. I'm James Jacobson on behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network. I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Does the act of taking paper to pen and writing help to heal a broken heart after your dog dies? Sheila Cooperman says yes. She joins us on Dog Cancer Answers to tell her true tale about Tucker, her dog who died last year from lymphoma. Sheila shares how writing about him is helping her heal not only from his loss, but from other heartbreaks as well. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and at dogcancer.com slash podcast.